I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. It's an age-old question across all types of investing. Can you have it all? By this, I mean, can investors get the twin benefits of doing well and doing good? For the various private equity participants, the question has become more urgent over the last several years, particularly around ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues. As requirements around doing good increase from politicians, LPs, employees, even GPs, the need for GPs and LPs to deliver it all continues to rise. Put simply, what are the broad social consequences of private equity investments? These were just some of the topics covered in a recent roundtable that brought together LPs, GPs, and academics sponsored by the Private Capital Research Institute, the Institutional Limited Partners Association, and the Private Capital Project at Harvard Business School. The event was titled, The Consequences of Private Equity on Employment and Management. So what did the various players have to say? I spoke with one of the conference leaders, Dr. Josh Lerner, chair of the Entrepreneurial Management Unit and the Skiff Professor of Investment Banking at Harvard Business School. He also serves as director of the Private Capital Research Institute, a nonprofit devoted to encouraging access to data and research about venture capital and private equity. More honors. Josh is vice chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on the Future of Investing and was named one of the 100 most influential people in private equity over the past decade and one of the 10 most influential academics in the institutional investing world. Here's our conversation. Josh, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Good to talk with you again. So you held a conference on the social consequences of private equity investments with particular focus on ESG, of course, environmental, social, and governance factors. Why do you have such a conference? How, how, how have the social consequences of private equity become such an industry concern? Well, it's certainly the case that this is an area where there is much greater awareness and sensitivity than was the case even five years ago. Well, it's certainly been the case that, you know, there have been criticisms offered by the, of the private equity industry for its consequences on jobs that have uh, appeared uh, periodically in the political arena. We can think about the period in the late 1980s and then again, right around the peak of the uh, mid-2000s buyout boom, where these issues were um, very much in the in the um, frame of discussion, they were largely external in focus in the sense that you know a lot of the criticisms and issues that were uh, that were raised were really in the context of people outside the private equity ecosystem um, criticizing the industry um, rightly or wrongly for for many of these aspects. And one of the changes that we've seen in the past few years has been much more of a discussion not being about responding to politicians. Um, if anything, it seems the political pressures have eased on the industry, but rather in terms of responding to concerns within the industry and particularly from limited partners who are increasingly thinking about not just simply what the financial returns of those investments are, but also what the broader um, you know, ESG-type 
consequences of those investments are. And and I know that your uh, your conference brought together, let's broadly speaking, three different perspectives: the GPs, the LPs, um, and, and the academics. Um, and I'm going to ask you about about each of them. But at the high level, that shift of focus, you know, maybe call it from external to internal, and and the willingness to um, look from the inside. How much of it? I mean, you just kind of differentiated in you know from the bottom line you know, evaluation, you know, at least from the LP side on, on returns, but, but across the board, LPs and GPs, is there a tie? Does it ultimately tie to the bottom line? I mean, it's such a bottom line focused sector, right? I mean, bo- mm-hmm. on both the LP side and the GP side, in the end, they're all really judged so strongly based on returns and based on numbers. So was it, even even if it was an ESG focus, did that does that get tied to the bottom line? Well, that's um, a great question, which doesn't have um, um, you know a, a clear um, a, a clear answer to it. But I think that it's fair to say that, particularly when it comes to um, European institutional investors, there is, and certainly many high net worth individuals, that. There really is that proverbial uh, double bottom line that essentially, while having you know good metrics on ESG considerations is not sufficient, and maybe it's not even primary. At the same time, it's also necessary. That you know there is a sense that you know many of these uh, pensions and families have people who are you know, very concerned about the consequences and impact of their portfolio. And as such, certainly the, um, you know, the comfort level with investing in groups that, you know, seem to be, have problematic ESG relationships is not really there. I think with the U.S. pensions in particular, it's a somewhat different kind of consideration they're, you know, perhaps reflecting the fact that we've seen a number of instances of political leadership within states pressuring pensions to do, you know, variously, various economically targeted investments, you know, which have had a very mixed track record. In many cases, they were pressured to do, um, you know, investments that turned out to either be um, – you know, of rather dubious economic merit in, in the worst cases, you know, where there was, you know, political, um, you know, political connectedness between the project sponsor and the, you know, political leadership of the state, there's been still a lot of caution about broadening the evaluation criterion from anything other than the financial return. I don't think you can paint a, with a broad brush the entirety of the LP community. And I do want to, I do want to ask you about the uh, the, the valuation criterion and uh, um, you know how that's looked at from from multiple perspectives. On that point of multiple perspectives, you had and this must have been fascinating um, LPs, GPs, and of course academics uh, led by you. How different were the viewpoints? I found myself in reading, uh, you know, reading your study. I, I found myself thinking about that old story of the blind men and the elephant. Were mm-hmm. the different private equity participants describing the same elephant? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. Which is to say that, 
you know, certainly the uh, we saw a number of comments and desires on the part of the limited partners to really invest in groups that had a positive impact on the world, which is uh, certainly a very laudable, uh, a very laudable goal. I think what the academic research highlighted is that while this was a, certainly a, you know, a terrific thing to aspire to, it also is the case that this is really hard to pull off, you know, in large part because assessing many of these issues is extremely challenging. And in particular, what we saw in the academic side was a number of examples of, you know, studies that tried to look very carefully at the consequences of private investing, but doing so by looking at will-structured kinds of problems where you could actually figure it out. So, for instance, the paper that Shai Bernstein and Albert Sheen discussed, which essentially looked at um, um, the, the health inspection data. Health inspection data. Yeah. Um, you know, ended up defining that the, um, you know, the when you looked at essentially fast food franchises versus which were owned by private equity groups as opposed to ones that were owned by independent owner operators, that you ended up seeing that there was substantially better performance after the private equity guys came in in terms of the likelihood that you know there would be health health or safety violations. So in some sense, you know, they're basically cleaner, they're safer and they're better maintained. Now on the one hand, you can say this certainly benefits restaurants and consumers, right? That, you know, the private equity guys seem to be doing, you know, seem to be doing something right. But certainly compared to the broader goal of saying we really want to understand what the impact of a given investment is on the economy, it's very challenging, right? It's challenging for private equity. It's You, know, you might argue it's even more challenging for you know, venture capital, right? You think about something like Uber, right? And you say, is this a good thing or a bad thing? You know, it's certainly making transportation cheaper, which is great, um, and allowing people to get places they might not be able to go otherwise. Um, you know, it's certainly creating new jobs for people who want to do stuff in the gig economy. At the same time, it clearly is having detrimental effects on, you know, taxi drivers and maybe even contributing to congestion in cities like uh, New York and Boston. So really figuring out what the, you know, the cost benefit calculus around these things is, which in many cases, the limited partners seem to express as their goal on this. I think if one lesson the came out of the academic stuff was that this was really hard. While one can look at, you know, very narrow places and see some patterns, the you know, when you looked in more depth, it looked more broadly. It was quite challenging to figure out some of these some of these 
issues. And on this question of jobs and job creation, and, and obviously, again, the, the title of the, the report, The Consequences of Private Equity on Employment and Management, and there's some real discussion there about about management. I mean, you talked about the study mm-hmm. on uh, operations, right. and uh, you know there was also um, uh, a study on, on injury rates and, and the downward mm-hmm. trend for, right. for all firms. But on this question of jobs, which is, you know, in the headlines every day, it's front and center, certainly in American politics and American discussion that you know tax bill that uh, you know is is coming up um, what i mean i, I understand it, it you know the, the 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 core question of is private equity good for jobs um, you know maybe that can on some level depend on on where you sit and how you define jobs and what aspects of jobs and and what defines good um, you did a study um, that looked at uh, five thousand buyouts and and you looked mm-hmm. at uh, employment I guess in the end how would you characterize the the responses that you got around that question and is there is it a communication issue? Is it a is it a fact based issue? Um, what was the takeaway, uh, you know, on, on this question of private equity and jobs? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, I think that what one can say with uh, real clarity is that you know when we looked at the sample of transactions between 1980 and 2003, and we're now updating it to take it through the financial crisis and so forth. But when you looked at the historical data, what you did see is that private equity-backed firms relative to their peer group did lose job. If you looked at who is working at the plants prior to the, you know, prior to the buyout and what happened to those firms after the buyout relative to their peer group, they did lose more jobs than the peer companies or they grew more slowly depending on which industry they were in. So there is a sense in which to, you know, looking at private equity in in aggregate to claim that private equity has no impact on employment is, is indeed misleading. That being said, you know, while they were also, while there was, you know, substantially more layoffs largely through plant closings at the existing plants, the private equity guys were also going through a process of opening up additional facilities, greenfield facilities. And these, we only looked at the United States. So this wasn't jobs in Bangalore or Shenzhen, but jobs, you know, other places in the United States uh, that were, you know, that was much more active on the part of private equity than they were of the comparable companies. So in other words, that the churn associated with private equity, both in terms of jobs destroyed as well as jobs created, were substantially higher in both cases. Net-net, private equity still ended up you know, leading to fewer jobs being created. But one of the consequences of the churn is that you had um, you know, a substantial increase in terms of the, uh, in terms of the productivity of the plants that in many cases we're talking about old economy, traditional metal bending plants. And what we found is that, uh, which typically have baseline productivity growth that's very modest. And we found that after the private equity guys came in, the rate of productivity growth often accelerated by on the order of 1% a year, which is a, you know, one percentage point a year, which is a big, big boost in terms of productivity. So let's say from one percentage point productivity growth to two percentage point productivity growth. So 
you know, very much of a, you know, a big, a big impact. Um, and, you know, in some sense, you know, perhaps one of the challenges is it doesn't really lend itself to a nice soundbite saying private equity is wonderful in every respect or has no, uh, no problem at or challenging consequences at all. On the other hand, it doesn't lend itself to, you know, uh, the story where private equity is terrible uh, either, right? You know, it's it's it just suggests it's uh, you know, it's 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 slightly complicated. Well, Josh, you you know I can't operate with complication. I need easy sound bites. I mean, we got you know, right? I mean, we got to boil it all Absolutely. down. If you can't boil, we one, yeah, yeah, ten words can't, it, can't count. Right? If it doesn't fit 140 characters. It's not worth saying. Yeah, right? I mean, might as well, might as well not even talk about it. Um, this this relationship, the labor private equity relationship. The report notes that labor is wary of private equity, and you've talked about its short term in nature, focus on uh, right. towards exiting, and, and you've talked a little bit about this. And on the other side, um, I, I was very interested to see that one of the conclusions from the GP panel seemed to be um, the need to improve information and understanding among right. various stakeholders. Um, how right. likely is that to happen, uh, particularly given some of labor's concerns? And what specifically would you recommend? I know you focus, you know, quite a bit in your life and in your studies on uh, the communications of GPs. Yeah. Um, what, mm-hmm. what specifically would you recommend GPs do in terms of uh, meeting that conclusion of improving the information and understanding among the various stakeholders? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. I think that one thing is clear is that private equity is an industry that is, you know, perhaps as the name suggests, private, right? And that many of the groups, you know, legitimately feel like tipping their hand in terms of their strategy is something that's potentially harmful to them. And as a result, play it very close to the vest. And while you can understand where they're coming from in a, in a business strategy kind of perspective, right? right? Saying if we're levered and, you know, in a way slightly vulnerable, we just certainly don't want to be tipping our hand what we're going to do in terms of pricing or other things so that our competitors aren't tempted to go after us. But at the same time, it's also clear that that kind of um, secretiveness can reinforce some of the anxieties that, you know, perhaps very legitimately end up surrounding the industry in the eyes of, you know, many, many stakeholders and other parties who are involved. And I think this is an area where the industry has to do more. I think the answer is not in terms of, um, you know, dodging the facts and saying, oh, everything is wonderful, because I think those kind of arguments of saying we did a sample of 40 firms or here are seven case studies of things that worked out well, you know, end up not convincing anyone and make the industry in some sense look a little um, you know, furtive in terms of its approach. It seems like it is, uh, you know, probably much more the, um, you know, much more the essential thing to, you know, very much, you know, engage, you know, a broader community about what the challenges faced by the business are, you know, what the responses are likely to be, and so forth. You know, that's likely to be, you know, a more painful and in some cases complicated process than would be, um, you know, than would, than would be the case with the sort of status quo. But I think in the long run, that's likely to be, you know, essential for success. 
And Josh, to, to close out uh, the conversation, just back on the, the broader ESG question, um, the report notes that there are some 4,000 private equity firms. And as the ESG interests grow, which types of GPs does that help and hurt? I mean, do bigger GPs have more flexibility to maintain ESG standards, even in economic downturns? And, and how important – do we need more – uh, um, level setting, more ESG standards, more accepted GS, ESG standards. Right. Um, I think that certainly it is the case that this, to a certain extent, does favor larger groups, right? That, you know, essentially when you think about it, they've got more resources to gather information, to communicate that information, and so forth. But I think that you can say that in some respects, that's a short-run effect. In the longer run, I think we will see across the private equity industry, there being more attention to these issues. And we'll just see not just large groups, but even middle market or lower middle market groups putting much more focus in terms of capturing what's going on with their portfolio companies and then communicating it. And uh, getting standards across the industry too, too hard to do? Well, that's a very interesting question. As you know, there's been you know, somewhat of a mixed track record in terms of these types of standards out there. But certainly, I think that as, you know, if indeed the limited partners push hard for it and are coordinated, which of course is a big if, yeah. but if they are, you know, it, it, is, it is very, very possible we may see that. Something to look out for. Josh, thank you. It must have been a fascinating uh, series of conversations among the multiple parties. Um, thank you. Thank you for your time, as always, and for discussing this. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed having a chance to chat. 